Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 14th, 2021, and this is episode 2976 of the Survival Podcast. And it is time for an expert council Q&A show. I'm going to give you the lineup today, but I'm going to skip the first one. Because the first one involves a big announcement. And I kind of want to do that all in one go together for those of you that haven't heard the announcement in social media or something like that today. This is a pretty big deal for myself, Dorothy, and the Survival Podcast community as a whole. But skipping that first one, we're going to hear from Dr. Ken Berry today. Thoughts on bariatric surgery for those who feel they can't lose weight, the, 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 the bad and the ugly. And there's not a lot of good in that one, as you might imagine. Tim, the tool man cook, is going to talk about two different subjects. One, dealing with pest wa pet waste smell. Like, you know, you buy a house and it smells like dog pee or something like that. Like a way to get rid of it that actually works. And uh, taking care of your generator with a generator cover if you can't build like a permanent place for your generator to be covered. Um, Doc Bones is going to talk to us on something called an arterial spatial aneurysm. And this is, uh, or an, I'm sorry, an atrial uh, spatial aneurysm. This is a rare condition, but it is something that is really good to know about. And basically somebody in the audience has been diagnosed with this and asked Doc for kind of a second opinion and some more information on it. Paul Wheaton's going to talk about peeling logs for construction use. Uh, many times we are able to acquire properties that have a lot of timber on them, and we don't want to go clear-cutting them or anything. But if we can use a lot of our own trees for our own building materials, that's great. For a lot of things you're going to do with a log, you'd like to peel it. Did you know there's a time of year to peel logs, and there's a time of year not to peel logs? Uh, Paul's got a guy on this property that's peeled about a 1,000 logs and was uh, fortunate enough to peel, I, I think, a, like a handful during the right time of year. We're going to learn more about that and why you might want to time it right for your area and how it does change based on the area you're in. And then we have uh, a twofer from Nicole Sauce that might sound like a one-fer when you first hear, but these are two separate questions. Uh, writing a business plan and launching an item of the month product business. I have some thoughts on those, as you might imagine. And then I have a quote for you that I'll be doing today. This is from Dwight Eisenhower. And... I chose this quote because when I looked on quote of the day stuff today, I noticed that there were a number of people whose birthdays are October 14th. And Dwight Eisenhower was born on October the 14th. So I saw what a great day to do an Eisenhower quote. And so I started scrolling through all the Eisenhower quotes on Brainy quote. And then I found this one. I like, this is so important for right now. And maybe a different take when I get to it than you would think. He said, only strength can cooperate. Weakness can only beg. And a long time ago, before I ever heard this quote, before I ever read anything like it, on this very show, I would say it was about 2008 or 2009, it was that early in the, the production of the show, I said something that really resonated with people on our, our, our forum at the time. And it was, sharing can only occur between equals. And we're going to talk about that when we get to my anchor segment today. Uh, now, with that, let me uh, 
give you this big announcement that's going to lead into our lead-off segment today. So as you guys know, about three weeks ago, I had a huge honor. Uh, one of the highlights of TSP. I mean, you know, if I go all the way back to the beginning, I've been on Glenn Beck's show. I've been on Judge Napolitano's show. Those were highlights. Um, I've been able to twice interview Gary Vaynerchuk. I was even able to have Gary Vaynerchuk do a special uh, conference call for a very small group of people within the show. Um, along the way, I met Dr. Ken Berry. I brought Dr. Ken Berry into the expert council. It was a huge thing. I mean, you have a guy that with a million plus subs on YouTube. It's helped so many people. Been on the cover of magazines. Like, there are some real highlights, and this this goes in that list of highlights uh, that I got to interview one of my true mentors and heroes in the world, Dr. Ron Paul. Well, I thought I'm going to take a shot at something that I wasn't sure would work. But I've always said when you miss a shot, all it took was as long as it took you to take the shot. That's all, that's all it cost you. And I thought about it, and I was like, if I go to Dr. Paul's people and be like, I want Dr. Paul to be on an expert council and answer a question every other week, um, as busy as the guy is, it, it's not going to happen. And it would be sporadic, and it, it would probably wouldn't fit well. It wouldn't fit well for me if I was doing that for somebody else, honestly, with the, the workload I carry. And he carries a bigger workload than me with a larger production and you know lots of public speaking and all. And so I thought, well, maybe there's still a way. And so he does his show five days a week like I do. But he has something I don't. He has technical people and, and you know, staff and all. So I, I approached um, Chris over there, who was the, the kind of the liaison that, that arranged the interview, and said, I have an idea. What would you guys be interested in? Every week you provide me a segment, five to seven minute segment, from whatever piece of Dr. Paul's work that week you think is like some of the best stuff, stuff you want featured on the show. And we'll form a, an official relationship, and you send me this content every week, and I'll run it, and I'll you know promote Dr. Paul's Liberty Report, and I get the content on my show. But I want to do this in official capacity. I don't want to go out and you know find my own segments. I like this needs to be something you guys participate in. And he said, "Well, let me go talk to Dr. Paul and the rest of the team." And I've known for about it was about a week into it that I heard back initially some favorable things, and I, I pretty much knew it was a done deal. But it wasn't a done done deal until a couple days ago. And so it's been something I've been really excited about. I've wanted to talk about. It. I'm like I don't want to jinx it. If you watched uh, or, or listened to uh, the Unloose the Goose uh, live stream last night, uh, if you listened all the way to the end, you heard that I did announce it at the end last night. So it was the first time it was uh, publicly told. But today I put out an article on this. So Dr. Paul uh, will now be weekly on the Survival Podcast. Good news. The other side of this, and I wanted to announce this too, for those that maybe have not heard yet, uh, I'm going on vacation twice this year instead of once. Right, So I'm going back to Florida again with my wife, and this time my good friend uh, David and his wife Mona will be accompanying us while we're there. And we're going to hang out for about 10 days. So next week, except for Monday, I am gone. I am gone all week next week and the following. So there will be no Dr. Paul segment. So here's this first one, um, and then uh, I'll be gone for a couple weeks of rewinds, and we'll be back uh, that following week. And then we're leading up to the workshop. Um, but... Uh, this is a big thing. This will be a good long-term relationship. And uh, this first segment uh, is Dr. Paul and, and two members of his team uh, talking about how every problem that we're dealing with right now 
from what's called the COVID disruption has either been made by and or worsened by government. And in this one, you'll, you'll hear two of uh, Dr. Paul's co-hosts responding to him. So the first person you'll hear will be Dr. Ron Paul. Then you'll hear Daniel McAdams and uh, following that, uh, Chris Rossini, who again was uh, instrumental in, in getting this all put together for us. And uh, there's one thing that's interesting about this. In, in this segment, they're discussing about these companies with more than 100 people uh, having to mandate the COVID vaccine and saying there is no law, there is no rule. And I've been saying that, too. Well, my understanding is last evening, um, after this was recorded, the uh, uh, OSHA actually submitted the potential rule for review. So there still is no law, there is no rule, the constitutionality of the rule would still be in question, like, is this even enforceable? I don't know. And you'll see here a reference here to the governor. The governor they're talking about is my governor, Greg Abbott, who recently issued an executive order that said you cannot mandate vaccines in the state of Texas for employment, period. And I don't care who you are, you can't do it federal employer, whatever. It cannot be done in the state of Texas. This is setting up for a head-to-head -head collision, and I think we need these. I think we need head-to-head -head collisions, and I think the states also need to be like, yeah, we don't care what the courts say. We're not doing this, and we're not letting you enforce it here. There is a point to stand your ground. I'll talk more about that in my segment with the Eisenhower quote. With that, here we go from Dr. Paul, first segment for TSP. Big business is very embedded with big government, and big government has a lot to say. So they can, the government can get the business people to do their dirty work, and it's like the social media can be the censors for the government. Yep. Oh, we're, we're in the government. We do not censor. Uh, but if you don't do the censoring, like you don't become our henchman, and you go out there and, and you won't censor people according to our political views, then you're in big trouble. So there's, I'm sure, a lot of this going on um, because all airlines deal with the governments. When you have all the regulations going on and the decision on routes and the, what, whatever, and, and uh, uh, I'm sure there's subsidies involved and 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 getting contracts and what whatever so there's a it's it's a so far removed from a free market economy then you come up with this art of you come up with the downturn created by the fed and then you come up with all this artificial nonsense with covid this is going on a year and a half and not getting any better yeah what, what is what do the people do they go and elect a guy like biden and he's supposed to he he has a plan and he says you need more mandates yeah. and uh i think that uh, uh that's unfortunately his is ruling the day right now and they're just they, they think they can get away with it but like you've already pointed out maybe they're not going to get away with it. Yeah. There's just way too much regulation, too, too much controls, which is totally opposite of what a free society is doing. Instead of doing things voluntarily and, and, and honestly, they do it by mandates and dictates and pol political power, and uh, this, this is the reason we get into these kind of messes. Key word here uh, in the governor's executive order is the word bullying and this is very important because it is a fact uh, it is not a conspiracy theory it is a fact that there is no presidential executive order requiring companies of a hundred or more employees 
uh, to have a vaccine mandate. It doesn't exist. There is no OSHA regulation that's been promulgated to make that happen either. These were threats that the president made early in September that he has thus far not followed through with. That's not to say that he won't attempt to do something. Uh, it seems the momentum might be going the other way. And that, of course, is due to a lot of brave people who have given up their livelihoods, uh, who have been subject to ridicule and worse because they have resisted. But it is a bluff. It's a big bluff at this point. But, of course, as we know, these kinds of bluffs work. This kind of blustering works. And why is that? Well, certainly with corporations, uh, most of them are in bed with government anyway. They like government regulation. They like being told what to do. Uh, and so they go along with it. A lot of the airlines, for example, have gotten big bailouts. Um, they enjoy being very friendly with the government. You know, this Build Back Better is not just seen in the United States. You see it peppered all over the world. Governments are saying this. And, you know, I hate to break it to them, but man did not create this world or human civilizations that are peopled all over the world. It's not built by a small handful of people that have happened to have a lot of money and time on their hands. Life was, uh, human life was uh, built over thousands of years of trial and error and traditions and customs, beliefs, religions. But there always seems to be those few that pop up that think that they are going to run the show and now they want to run the whole world. And they seem to never have a hard time finding believers. And you just think over the last several centuries of the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, Maoism in China, the Nazis, you know, they destroy everything. They're good at that. They just, and they'll destroy everything, calendar, churches. They'll go after religions, languages. They'll even change street signs. It's as if they want a blank canvas to create what exists only in their imaginations. And what happens is everything stays destroyed. Nothing is built back, let alone built back better. And we in the United States understand this. You know, all we have to do is our look at our own country's foreign policy over the last several decades. They were going to go to the Middle East and totally remake these people, give them new institutions and laws and schools, and rid them of their ways. And they did nothing of the sort. They left nothing but rubble and a bunch of people that wanted nothing but uh, for Americans to just get out. So it, it, that's not the way things work. They're not going to build back anything better. The only thing that actually builds anything is freedom and liberty. You know, just one thing I want to add on this one, other than, again, how exciting it is to have Dr. Paul's team working directly with us now, um, is right where Dr. Paul led off, and he said something that I think was easy to gloss over, and certainly by the time you got to the end of the segment, you may have forgot you even heard it, and was that, that business likes government telling them what to do. And this sounds absolutely obscene until you think about the fact that most of the laws are not written by Congress, rather lobbyists, and it's the, it's the, it's the companies that pay the lobbyists to write the laws that they hand to the congressmen. So the companies are telling themselves what to do. And you realize how perverse this is when you hear people who are aware of it, but blissfully unaware of the impact of it say it. There's a guy that's on the radio here that I have a lot of respect for, other than his political views. Um, he, he, he definitely leans to the left. He's definitely a believer in government and thinks government's a great thing. Um, his name's Ed Wallace, and his show is actually about automobiles, cars, and trucks, and things like that. He's very good at that. 
Um, he also does a segment in his show that I've, I've tried to get him several times to turn into a podcast, which he does not understand what podcasts are, which is why he won't do it, called The Backside of History, where he does deep dives into history. A lot of things you think you know about history are wrong, and he does a great job with that. But one day he was talking about how auto manufacturers, basically whatever the government says to build, they build it, and they're happy to do it. Like, tell us what you want to do, and we'll do it. And he was talking about this like this was a great thing. Now I want you to think about that. You got a guy who's dedicated his whole life to an industry. He's seen all the problems governments created in the industry. And he thinks the solution to those problems is government to just to figure out what the right kind of cars to build are and then tell the, the, the car companies to build those types of cars and then they will and then the problem will be solved. It's insane. It's insane. And the country right now lives in a state of mass insanity, mass hysteria. It's not just the COVID's problem, guys. It's the belief that government can fix the problem by both sides. Now, I agree, one side tends to be worse with their faith in government, but placing faith in government, huh. You might as well put faith in the Great Pumpkin. With that, let's move on to something totally different. Ken Berry talking to you about gastric bypass surgery. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from James. James' question is, do you recommend bariatric surgery for someone who has tried and failed to lose weight several times throughout his life? My BMI is over 40. I have low thyroid. I've recently restarted the keto diet and am not seeing much by way of results. And I can't climb stairs or even roll over in bed without getting winded. My doctor recommended I consider a gastric bypass or similar. What say you? Great question, James. Thank you for that. Uh, there are many, many thoughts come to mind. First of all, bariatric surgery does help people lose weight. It does help them reverse type 2 diabetes. It does help in multiple ways. But let's be honest about what gastric or bariatric uh, surgery is. The surgeon is literally mutilating part of your gastrointestinal system permanently. And so if, if I were to tell you that, hey, I can help you lose 20 pounds, I'm just going to cut off your right leg just below the knee, and you overnight you'll lose 20 pounds. Well, that's true, but what are the ramifications of having that permanently mutilating surgery for the rest of your life? And when it comes to bariatric surgery, you're going to have a lifelong list of things that you have to consider, check, and do that you wouldn't have to consider, check, and do if you hadn't had the gastric or bariatric surgery, such as you have to really be mindful of vitamin intake. You have you, There are many, many possible complications and side effects of bariatric surgery. Now, it may sound like I'm opposed to bariatric surgery, but I'm not. But I think that uh, maybe one-tenth of one percent of the morbidly obese people in the United States are candidates for bariatric surgery. What I would recommend to you, James, is to try 90 days of a carnivore diet of which you eat as much as you want of beef, butter, bacon, and eggs, and some real fermented full fat cheese. And you can eat as much as you want. You can eat two times a day, three times a day. Try not to snack in between the meals. Do that for 90 days. And at the end of that 90 days, if you haven't lost a substantial amount of weight, then you may be someone who needs to consider bariatric surgery. 
but don't let the bariatric surgeon gloss over the potential side effects, some of which are very, very common and a huge pain in the ass. Uh, and don't let them act like, oh, this is just the end-all, be-all. There, there's no downside to this. You're, everything's just going to be better and your life will be perfect because that's absolutely not true. In my practice, I've had multiple patients who had bariatric surgery who have problem with hair loss, problems with fingernail loss, uh, problems with vitamin and mineral deficiencies, cr- uh, cr- constant daily throwing up, constant daily diarrhea. Yeah, this is a huge mutilating event to your gastrointestinal system, so don't take this lightly. I hope this answer helps. I've got multiple videos on my YouTube channel about how to lose lots of weight as quickly as is healthily possible. So check those out for further information. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. I completely agree with the 90-day carnivore plan for James before he, he mutilates his, 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 or his internal organs. I completely agree with that. And, and I would say that if you need to do it, with Gestapo-style enforcement, if you need to hire somebody to come to your house and purge it of anything that doesn't fit carnivore, and if you try to go get it, they beat you up, tie you up, they shouldn't be too hard if you run out of breath rolling over, then you do that because you're worth it. If nobody's told you that yet, you're worth it. You're worth doing this for. And I think if you do it, not only will you lose a lot of weight in that 90 days, Not only will you feel so much better, you will forever transform who you are. And I'm so confident in that, I would say that if you actually do carnivore, now keto and carnivore are different, and there's a lot of self-deception when it comes to keto if it doesn't come with adequate discipline. And this is where Ken and I have disagreed about the caloric thing in the past. If you tell somebody they can go on a keto diet and not count calories when they're extremely obese, I think you are wrong. And I don't think you're wrong because it's in of itself untrue, but they will never, ever, ever actually do keto correctly if they're going to eat all the other stuff and try to make, you know, pizza rolls and stuff like that and, and, and use low carb breads and all the, and almond flour and all that shit. Not while they're in a state of total addiction, which if you are as overweight as James is, you are. But if you eat beef, bacon, eggs, and butter for the next 90 days. I am so confident that it will radically change your life that I would endorse your decision to get bariatric surgery if it didn't. That's how confident I am from what I've seen in myself and in others. Now, let's keep the variety going because we went from Dr. Ron Paul uh, on Liberty to Dr. Ken Berry on uh, gastric bypass and carnivore eating. Let's go to Tim the Toolman Cook on a cover for your generator, and dealing with pet odor smells. Now, pet odor smells like, you might say, that's something like hints for Heloise or something. We're talking about a handyman here. We're talking about a way that you can make some money, save your customers some money, or maybe make some money because you can buy a house that you can actually fix up and cut down the cost of fixing it up so you can rent it or sell it or even live in it. Like, this is a valid skill set, and it's something that we should certainly know about. He's going to give you a product for this that I have a link in the show notes to, and I'll just say that there was a house that I refused to buy that I might have bought if I knew about this product. With that, Tim the Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. 
back to answer some more questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in and see what we can get done. Okay, this question comes from Thomas T. over on YouTube, and he asked, what is your favorite product for eliminating pet waste smells? The one that I have used, well, let's back up real quick. Last spring, I had to rehab a rental, a whole house that had been absolutely decimated by some tenants who lived there and who basically locked their dogs in a couple of rooms all day, every day, and let them have their way on the hardwood floor. Now, my recommendation was to tear up the hardwood floor and put down a new subfloor if it had soaked through. And that was what I was going to do. However, um, the, te- the owner of the home called me one day and said, you know, before we try that, could we try a new product? And I thought, oh boy, here we go, because you never know, right? And it was called Decon 30. And I started doing some research on it, looked into it on Amazon, and it turns out that it is a really effective product. But I hadn't used it yet, so I decided to try it. The stuff's not cheap. It comes in at $36 a gallon. But what do I like about it? It's a spray it and leave it kind of stuff. It's the same type of thing that they use in a lot of hospitals. And it turns out that it really works. This stuff, it took two applications to basically neutralize and eliminate the the urine and the poo smells. And it actually worked. It So you spray it on. You don't have to spray it off at all. What do I love about Decon 30? Well, it's food surface safe. It's 99.99% uh, will kill bacteria, almost 100% of bacteria in 30 seconds. Its active ingredient, get this, is thymol, which is made from thyme oil. So it's 100% food safe, biodegradable. Basically, it, it's just safe in general. There's no chemicals in it at all. It's considered a full disinfectant if you apply it at full strength. And if you want to use it as a cleaner and an odor remover, you can just uh, mix it five parts of the cleaner to 30 parts of the water. I used to use Odaban for this all the time, and it worked really well. But this stuff just blows it out of the water. And it's hard to explain what a smell smells like through an audio segment, but it has kind of an iodine smell. It, it really smells like when you go into a hospital just after they finish disinfecting something. It lingers for, I would say, I put it on full solution. I didn't dilute it simply because I wanted to really eliminate it. And the smell lingered for about a week, but it sure beats the alternative of having the pet waste just sitting there soaking into the hardwood floor. So we were able to eliminate that smell enough to be able to cover everything with laminate floor at that point. So if you're looking for something that'll, you know, for the most part, eliminate that kind of stuff, this Odaban 30 works. I'll send a link to Jack so he can put it in the uh, show note. Okay, and the next question comes from Giffen over on YouTube as well. And they wanted to know what my thoughts on the Gen 10 portable generator cover were. Do I like it? How is it held up? Does it get in the way of being able to start the generator? And does it reduce the noise at all? Well, if you guys haven't seen the Gen 10 portable generator cover, it's a really cool product. The company makes some really high claims about it. They basically say that it will hold up to, I want to say it was 80 mile an hour winds, uh, 12 inch snow load, rain. Anyway, it's basically a tent that you put the frame on your generator, or at least the brackets, and leave them there. And then you can put this on so that you can leave your generator outdoors at least in a safe place so it's away from your home and being able to catch on fire, and it will keep the worst of the weather off of your expensive investment of a generator. 
So it basically looks like a canopy tent over top, and then it has a flap-down cover on the front to help protect the electronics. What do I like about it? Well, it's lightweight. It seems like it'll do the trick. I watched some real-life videos of it, and it seemed to work really well. The clips that hold it on fold out of the way when they're not in use, so I like that. They are made out of plastic, which isn't the greatest thing in the world. However, uh, you can open up the top. It has a nice latched uh, system at the top where you can refill it with fuel without having to take it off. It doesn't interfere with the pull start at all. However, it's not a noise reduction product. It's really cool if you have a really tight, small space where you, you know, just don't have a lot of room or you can't make a permanent setup for a generator. If you wanted something that's going to, you know, kill the sound as well, I would look into building, you know, an insulated, semi-soundproof storage area for your generator that's well vented. But as far as this product goes, it does what it should do. Absolutely. And it is a little bit expensive, so I would say it's right on the cusp of whether I recommend it or not, but I have it now, and I've used it a few times just in testing, because we've been lucky enough not to have any power outages, but I'll send the link uh, to Jack as well for that, and it, it is a really cool product, and it, it fits a niche for some people, but yeah, so if you're looking for a tent that basically stays on your generator and you don't have to put anything in the ground or make anything permanent, the Gen Tent portable generator cover might be something you're interested in. Okay, guys, that's it for me this week. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, run by toolmantim.co. You'll see the monthly email newsletter, the weekly podcast, all of my social links, and of course, drop by the YouTube channel, which is also a simulcast on Float and Odyssey every single Sunday evening. We've moved it up to 7 o'clock Mountain Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, so hopefully we can get all of North America there. But we have some really cool topics, a lot of good discussion, and we had our largest live stream ever the other night. So if you want to drop by and say hello, I would love that. So anyway, guys, thanks again, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I guess just to make things clear on my intro on that segment, the house that I might have bought had I known about this product was a long, long, long time ago. With that, let's hear about um, something called, I'm going to try to say this properly because I'm not a doctor, an atrial septal aneurysm from Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the brand new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available at Amazon and at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Dan from upstate New York, who says, I am 36 years old and 155 pounds with a family history of heart disease and heart attack. I recently went to a cardiologist to get checked out due to this family history and found a few issues. One of the issues is high blood pressure, but I've gotten that down to normal on my own with eliminating alcohol, limiting coffee, and meditation. My blood pressure was 165 over 110. Oop, that's high. But after a week, it is running around 118 over 80. That's great. Well, the other issue that is worrying me is an atrial septal aneurysm that was present on my transthoracic echocardiogram. Although I like and respect my new cardiologist and his staff, I would like somewhat of a second opinion and explanation of this condition since I've never heard of it before now. I did a little research online and it seems that I'm at high risk for stroke and possible early death as young as 50. I'm a very active person and eat better than most, but there's a lot of room to do better. Now I'm wondering if it's safe for me to be as physically active as I am. Dan from upstate New York. 
Dan, I guess I should start with a little anatomy. The heart has four chambers, two upper chambers known as atria that are separated from each other by a fibrous wall known as the atrial septum, and two lower chambers known as ventricles that are separated from each other by the ventricular septum. Atrial septal aneurysm, or ASA, is a deformity associated in the wall separating the right and left atria. Tissue in the wall bulges into the right or left side of the atria, either the right atrium or the left atrium, or both. It's relatively rare, and it's found usually as an incidental finding during other cardiac tests, like sonograms. It can be related with other heart defects and is seen slightly more in people that suffer from migraines, especially severe migraines. A large study recently evaluated more than 16,000 people undergoing heart sonograms and found that your condition was present in 2.4% of patients, that 72% of them were women. At the same time, some were found to have irregular heartbeats and other accompanying irregularities. You don't mention, Dan, if they found any other unusual findings or if you've been having irregular beats in addition to the atrial septal aneurysm. Besides irregular heart rhythms, there is, as you mentioned, an increased risk of blood clots forming in the area of the aneurysm, some of which may make their way to the brain. The way they count the statistics can make it appear that you won't make it past 50, as you say, with one study showing a pretty strong correlation with strokes. But other studies that evaluated stroke patients found about a 7.9 incidence of an atrial septal aneurysm in those people versus about 2.4% in the general population. 7.9% is not 100%, so it's not a given that you'll suffer a stroke or that this condition is some kind of death sentence. The good news is that an isolated atrial septal aneurysm requires no specific treatment other than regular sonograms to look for the presence of blood clots in the heart. Still, treatments do exist that may be appropriate. Therapeutic options for prevention of strokes in people with atrial septal aneurysm involves the use of blood thinners and antiplatelet agents. A French study suggested that the use of aspirin therapy may drop the risk of recurrent strokes to that of the general population. Of course, if you're having irregular heart rhythms or arrhythmias, control of that condition is definitely very, very important. If there is more than one heart defect, indeed, in some cases, heart surgery is indicated. Now, I'm not a cardiologist, but I would think that someone with arrhythmias might have to limit their activities somewhat. Otherwise, I would think that exercise would depend on the size of the aneurysm, turbulence in blood flow through the heart chambers, and the presence of signs and symptoms. In any case, ask your cardiologist what they recommend. They've seen more of this than this old country doctor. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, please check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. And while you're at it, get a copy of our brand new, greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. You'll be glad you did. Next up, um, this this segment by Paul Wheaton was actually sent to me as a follow-up to a previous segment where they talked about building doors and latches and hinges and doing everything out of timber, where he kind of started doing a series on on using you know timber off your property for construction and things like that. And then what happened is they had their rocket mass heater jamboree, and we had TSP people up there, so I kind of interrupted it. And last week I played a segment about that, so I'm going to kind of get back on this uh, thing with you know using the trees on your property. Uh, to build and create things because there's a lot of timbered property out there. And with the price of timber right now, you can save a ton of money the more of it that you can use for more of the things that you want to do on your property. Now, I know a lot of people, when you start talking about cutting trees down, they start freaking out. Um, but if you're talking about significant acreage, 
you can often go into stands of timber, selectively harvest trees, and actually improve the overall resiliency of the timber ecosystem. And in the end, there are places, if you buy a fully timbered property, that maybe you want to build a house or have a garden or have some other open area, put a road through or what have you. And that's a lot of timber that comes down, and that's a lot of stuff you can use. And if you want to use it, in many instances, in fact, most instances, if you're using logs, whether no matter what you're doing with them, you're going to want to peel them, right? Okay, well, did you know there's a way to do that and a right time to do that with that Mr. Paul Wheaton? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. And we're here to tell you today about how there is a particular time of year where it's easier to peel a log. It's heavenly peeling logs in the spring. So it's so much easier. I, I believe the number, Kyle, that you threw out earlier was 20 times it's easier. It's much, much faster and easier on your body. It peel logs when the sap is flowing up through that that uh, that living layer of the tree, and the bark just like swells and pops off. It's so. How many logs have you peeled in your time here? I don't know, maybe a dozen. I think. Okay, all right. Yeah. And then, uh, how many of them? For us, it's roughly around May. Mm-hmm. So, how many of them were these easy peel logs? Two. Two. All right. <laughs> so, so ten logs. Not so yeah. much. You're out there with a spud mm-hmm. um, or a draw knife. What's your favorite peeling tool? Uh, I usually like to use the spud. Okay. Yeah, the draw knife is is okay if you're going around a knot, but it's harder on your on your body getting down there and working on it. It's like like trying to sand a floor, and yeah, it's just easier with the spud. I think right now we have three different kinds of spud. And um, I mean, we've got quite the buffet of log peeling tools. I mean, we do so many projects with logs. Yeah, it's good. And, and so, uh, th- I mean, the only time we don't really peel a log, generally, is when we're going to put it into the sawmill. Yeah. Then it's like, eh, the sawmill kind of takes it off on its own. Yes. But for anything structural that we're going to do, you got to peel the log first. So that the bugs don't get behind there and moisture doesn't seep into the wood and start the rotting process. I would say that if you use a log that has not been peeled, there it, it is like about 40% more likely that it will rot. Yeah, you'll start to see, you know, fungus activity and, and bugs hiding back there. And it's, even right. if it's undercover, eh, you just start getting some, some stuff going on there. Right. When we build the berm sheds, we'll use a lot of unpeeled stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we get to see how well that works when, with unpeeled stuff. And it's like... It's not too bad. Like like one out of I'm gonna say 18 will rot mm-hmm. prematurely. Yeah, because those those sugars that are still in that in that uh, that inner bark that start to yeah. be tasty for little creatures. Yes, yes. So the, the the important thing is is that when the sap is running just right. And then you go over there, and it's like you could just bump the tree, and it's like the bark yeah. falls off. You, in some cases, you can get your fingers under it and just peel off a big three-foot section, and it's amazing. And then, uh, But even more than that, you'd think like, oh, wow, I just dropped that tree, and it was so easy to peel. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to go get the next tree, and it'll be so easy to peel, Not too. necessarily. Um, <laughs> different parts of the forest might get more sun. Uh, it might be warmer in some spots, so it, the, the, the trees are growing earlier. So I think it's a good idea to check the bark uh, before you fell it and to see if it's ready yet. Um, I haven't checked it, but I'm, it does make sense to 
you know, if it's laying on the ground and it's easy to peel, well, if it were still standing up, it would still be easy to peel. So if you're trying to do this and, you know, stock away 10 logs, um, good to check and see what, what's going on underneath the surface. Now, the rest of the year when you go and you peel a log and it's fresh, yeah. then the resulting log is kind of sticky. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but when you get this magic peel, uh, the resulting log is like soaking wet. It's like it just got yeah. out of the shower. Yeah, it's extremely slippery. Um, but once it <laughs> once it dries off, it, it's the bark comes off clean, and the texture of that inner wood isn't all scraped up from you, you know, hacking away at it. And, uh, <laughs> you just get a better product, and you know, less wear and tear on your your body. You know. This might be a good time to check in with you. Like, uh, you're in the boot camp. You're in the permaculture boot camp. How's yep. it going for you? It's going pretty great. Okay. All right. I, uh, that's all we got for you today, Jack. Uh, thanks. Bye. Bye. So I think that was a really great segment by Paul. Um, and, you know, it makes me think when I was a kid in the spring, there was a real obvious time when the red birches would peel really well. And I, I did a lot of stuff with red birch when I was a kid because it grew like a weed on all the old stripping banks in the old mining areas of Pennsylvania. And it would grow, you know, to like wrist diameter, nice straight poles uh, by about three years of age. So, and there was, you know, there'd be 50 of them in an area that maybe two would fit in once they were fully mature. So, taking them did many we used them for everything from tomato steaks for building tent poles and all kinds of stuff and it was exactly like they said you kind of go out and get a knife and pull on it a little bit and if it didn't quite come wait a day or two and try it again and when you got to where it would just peel it would peel and i i, I think there might be something to what they were saying about you know different parts of the forest like if it's deeper in less sun more sun you know i'm sure there's something to that because it's it's sap flow for sure that does it um, but I think it's probably more species specific, uh, unless you have like trees that are right on the edge and really getting blasted with sun and really on the interior. I think species wise, they end up pretty close to the same. And you got to be careful when you say something like that, because people will say, well, these three oaks were totally different. Were they the same oak? You know, was one a chingapin oak and one was a white oak and one was a red oak? Because I mean it down to that level, you know, was it black uh, tupelo, right? If it's black tupelo, then all the other black tupelo, but not necessarily any tupelo species, right? Uh, You know, so I I think you have to look at it that way. But I think it's definitely a thing. Um, Again, I remember it extensively using birch for so much and kind of makes me miss the Northeast once in a while when I think about all the natural resources that grow in places where it's not 110 degrees all summer long, and it does rain in the summer. Next up, I have uh, Nicole Sauce with a twofer for you. Uh, one uh, question is on putting together a business plan, and the other one is more on uh, the implementation of a business plan with a product-of-the-month uh, type of product. Uh, with that, here we go with Nicole Sauce. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from Matt. Matt asks, how do you come up with a business plan? Second question, how about a business plan for a content creation business? Well, Matt, the answer is it depends. (laughs) Depends on what kind of business plan you need to write and what you're using it for. The kind of business plan I would put together to go for investors in a business startup is totally different than what I need to get started in starting my own small business. I'm going to take this from the 
tack, though, for you of a small business you're starting for yourself, and I'm guessing you want to do a content creation business. Now, every time I need to write a business plan to present to somebody, what I do is I go online and I find a template and I look at it and I take those categories and I put them together. Okay. When I'm working with small businesses to get their, their strategic business plan put together, I have a method I go through that starts at the top, big picture goal, and then folds down into marketing, into operations, into funding, into all of those things. I call that method my three things. I'm putting that on a shelf right now, and I'm just going to go back to the basics because if you look online, you need to have an executive summary, a business description, a product description, your market analysis, the sales and marketing, your competition, operations, and budget. Okay, that doesn't help you get started, does it? So here's what I, I, I would advise you to do is start by asking your question yourself some questions that are simple. What am I selling and what problem does it solve? This gets you a description of what what you're selling. And in a content creation business, it, it may be information. It's usually information. Who am I selling it to? Most important question. You can't sell it to everybody. Well, you can try. But if you figure out who you're selling it to and narrow that down to a small number of people, it is easier to reach them. Why do they want to buy it? This is very important. Notice I didn't say, why am I selling this thing? I Why do they want to buy it from you? If you can answer that question and frame your marketing around that and connect with the person you're selling it to, you're going to have a leg up. What is my brand promise to the people I'm selling this to? How will I sell it to them? Where am I going to find them? How many of them are there? How many of them are there? How much money do they spend on it every year? How many will there be to sell to? Who else is selling to them? And what is unique about them versus what is unique about me? How am I different from the people selling to those people? After you've gotten that all figured out, ask yourself, what do I need to have in place to deliver on my promise, both when I make sales and when customer complaints come in? And then, very important, before you start, how will I make money on this and make a model? How are you going to get income and what are you selling and for how much and how many do you think you can sell and what infrastructure do you have to pay for? What do you need to get going up and off the ground, startup costs versus long-term revenue? How long until you think you can start charging for it? Those kinds of things are important. When, when you start a content business, though, I will say this. You can start by doing all of that without the monetization and decide I'm going to figure out monetization as I go. I think the biggest mistake I see in content creation businesses is people get so hyper-focused on the revenue model that they get discouraged and don't do the work they need to do to grow the audience that they need to have to then monetize it. And I can tell you my content creation business makes most of its revenue in coffee sales. So I sell coffee at hollerose.com and most of the people who buy the coffee hear me on my podcast. It's, it's really that, that simple. That's my best sales channel. And it, it's going to be something different for your content creation business. I think the important thing on a content creation business is that you've figured out what you're selling and what that information looks like, who's buying it. You get it out on the platforms that they're on. And then that you're very, very consistent in the content that you deliver and that you are engaging with the audience when 
when they do something with you. An example of that would be you throw out a YouTube video, somebody comments, you need to be on there commenting back. That's very, very important in a content creation business because with content creation, the relationships really matter. And that's how you go from relationship to recommendation. And if you view that in a sales world as the top of your funnel, the bigger that is, the more likely you are to convert more people to the monetization when the time comes. I hope that's brought this process down to earth for you and that you can escape all of the business plan writing jargon that's out there. Of course, if you're writing a business plan that you need to turn into a presentation for investors, that's a totally different answer. Let me know if that's what you were trying to ask. I'm going to do a twofer today. I've also got a question in from Melissa asking, would anybody be interested? She was just pulling the market. Would anybody be interested in a spice of the month club where you get a spice packet and a recipe to use it on once a month for, say, about 20 bucks? The reason I'm bringing this up here is I'm hoping she'll hear it. What followed were a bunch of people telling her why they would never spend that much money on spices and didn't really like the subscription model because it wastes money and that sort of thing. And here's the deal, Melissa. That actually might be a really good idea for the right audience. And you can sell them as a lump sum in like a three-month spice of the month package that comes with the spice and the recipe, and it makes a great Christmas gift, and all in, it's about 60 bucks, and it goes straight to the person's house. People love stuff like that around the holiday, so right now is a good time to do that, right? You know, three months, six months, or a year. It's a great way to get started, and the only way you'll know, for real, if the people you already reach would like something like that is if you see if you can sell some. With something like that, In a business where you're already established and you're already mailing spices out, which I know you are, it's a very low barrier to entry to write that first recipe, get the word out there, price it, figure out all your shipping, have a way for people to buy it and launch. Worst case scenario, you sell a few of them and it's a three month gig and you're done. Best case scenario, it really takes off. So I just wanted to say, despite all the naysayers I see telling you they wouldn't spend money on it, they're obviously not your target audience. Think about who will, because I know a lot of people look for something unique and consumable at the holidays. And I think spice packets that are from responsibly sourced places with a recipe idea would make a great gift, especially for people whose families maybe are just getting into the cooking arena. And the other thing is you may want to pair up with some people who do something similar, like Angie's Gardens, who is one of the MSB folks here at TSP, does a tea of the month club. What if it was tea plus spice? Stuff like that. Maybe think about doing an add-on to somebody else's subscription. Those are my thoughts on that. Guys, if you've got questions about business things, feel free to, to pitch them in or even food preservation. Just did a big podcast episode about that with Jack and loved it. If you want to find out more about me, just check out livingfreeintennessee.com. Make it a great week. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about my segment today. Again, it's Dwight Eisenhower's birthday. You'll notice that I don't quote a lot of presidents or politicians in general on this show. Um, There are some that I consider kind of like a unicorn, and maybe Eisenhower's half unicorn. Uh, some people would really hate him because they hate war, and you know he was the leader of the Allied forces in World War II. Uh, 
Uh, it's not the quote I have today, but uh, Eisenhower famously said, I hate war as only a soldier can hate war. And I'm paraphrasing from here because I've seen it in all its pointless stupidity. So I, Eisenhower was definitely not a pro-war person. And at the time he served as president, he probably did more to keep us out of war than put us into war. Um, definitely a unicorn. And maybe my opinion of him is a little bit higher because there is some family history uh, connecting uh, my family to Eisenhower. And I guess maybe that might sway it a little bit. But I've always loved so many things that the man stood for and said. And I really respected that when he departed the White House, he left us with a warning about the military-industrial complex. To this day, is the only president that's ever done anything close to that. And uh, I think we could use an Eisenhower today. And I think we could use people, if we're going to have people in power, and remember, I'd prefer not to have people in power. But if we're going to have people in power, we need people that think the way Eisenhower does. Because there's two ways to take this quote. And one is that you can be a bully. And the other one is to avoid people being bullied. And I think Eisenhower meant it the second way. He said, only strength can cooperate. Weakness can only beg. And that means that whenever you're in a position where you're negotiating for what you want, you have to put yourself into a position of strength. And that doesn't mean that you have to turn into the bully. You bully the bully. You stand up to the bully. And right now, there's no doubt who the bully is. It's giant corporations and a fascist state. That's who the bully is. And we need to realize our own strength. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I want to go back in time, though, almost 13 years ago, to that quote that I made. I didn't even know that Eisenhower had said this. and I didn't know how in sync our minds were with this thought. I said, sharing can only occur between equals. And that really hit a lot of people hard. That was one somebody we used to have an old school forum before all the days of social media taken off, and that one really hit. Somebody did a you know what are your favorite Jack quotes, and that was like the most favorite one that Sherry can only curb between equals. There were people that didn't quite get it, and they said that you know almost never are two sides in any sort of trade equal. One always has more money, more power, more size, more strength, more something than the other. And that's true. But can the two sides treat each other as equals? That's the key. If the two sides can treat each other as equals, when people come to my uh, place, like they're going to in a, in a few weeks now, we're going to have our, our fall workshop we do trade on something called the barter blanket. And there might be somebody offering something for trade with me, and I might have a lot more money and influence than they do, or they might have a lot more money and influence than I do, but we treat each other as equals in that trade. And you might think, well, that's not sharing, like you said, Jack. Any exchange is sharing. I might get compensated for my contribution from you so that we are voluntarily in that situation. But it's a trading of resources or a trading of energy. Sharing can occur because I choose to just give you something, right? Or sharing can occur because I choose to trade with you in some way. And we can only have true sharing when we trade as equals. So that requires ethics primarily on the side of he who has greater strength. 
What Eisenhower is saying here is, if the person you're dealing with is not ethical, then you have to build your strength up till you're at least as strong or stronger than that other party. And then you can be equitable. Then you can be ethical. Because you don't have to fear them and they know it. Well, guys, if you want to sum up the actual solution to the shithole mess that we're in today, there it is. We have all the power, and we have no idea that we have all the power. If every single company out there with more than 100 people in it on Ron Paul's subject today with the OSHA mandate, since the OSHA rule has at least been submitted, whether it's going to come through or not. But if every every single company that was in existence today in America that had people that were objectionable to this, and I'm going to say it's more than half of people do not like the idea of these mandates. Even some that have gotten the vaccine do not like the idea of these mandates. If every company with more than 100 employees in it circulated a memo and said, if you issue a mandate, we're leaving, and signed it, and you have 120 people working in your company, and you get a letter, and you see that letter, and that letter says, 75 of my people say the minute I issue a mandate, they're just going to call in sick and walk out the door. Guess what I'm not doing? I'm not going out of business. And if that's happening everywhere all the time at the same time, Who are, when people say, well, they'll just fire me and they'll hire somebody else, who are they going to hire? Who, how, we already have a labor shortage, guys, a massive labor shortage we have right now. There's never been a time, you know, the, the communists always say, workers of the world unite. At this point, yes, please. Not for communist aims, but for liberty's aim. That's all we have to do is everybody that's employed that will not accept these mandates, needs to state before it even happens. I'm telling you right now, the day you mandate it, I'm out the door. And all these people that own these companies, they all know other people that own companies. And what are you going to I'm going to call the National Guard in? Hey, if you're in the National Guard, you need to be in the same boat. right? And what are you going to do? It's a zero-sum game. We've talked about it before. Well, I'm going to bring National Guard in to do this stuff. Don't you know, dummy, that National Guard are part-time soldiers, and if you if you do that and you're pulling them in to do a nurse's job, they're probably doing a nurse's job in the private sector, so you've moved a nurse from one hospital to another. Yay, you. Maybe they already are the nurse that got fired. Who knows? But if we all just said, I'm not doing that, it's game over for them. We have the strength if we'll only see it. Any restaurant, any business that puts up a sign, you know, proof of vaccination required for entry, don't do business with them. Don't do, don't go. Don't argue about it. Go somewhere else. If the whole damn city does it, move. I'm not kidding. I'm way past kidding. This is a fucking war. This is a fucking war. And for the first time, we have a fucking war with our own fucking government that can be fought without firing a shot without firing a shot, without breaking a window. Because for the first time, they've gone to war with us in the one place that we're actually stronger. You don't want me working here? Fine. Fuck off. I won't work here. Because how many people is your employer going to lose before they go, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hmm. Gee. We're not. And then what happens if every, you know, we need a basically... 
we need to start networking with each other, you know, like on social media, like the real social media where they let you say what you have to say. And we need to be grouping together. How many doctors does it take to establish a practice? How many doctors? It takes one, guys, one. So doctors need to start establishing practices and clinics and even small surgical facilities, et cetera, like that, and say, we hire people without vaccines. You don't have to have a vaccine to be treated here. No. We need airlines to start forming that way. Yeah, you know, maybe we're a private airline, so we're not going to be playing games with the federal government. Maybe we're contracting, et cetera. Now, that might be a, be a little harder because they are federal no matter what. But who knows? You know what? Starve them. Starve them. You know how I'm getting to Florida this month? I'm fucking driving my new Toyota. You know why? When I went to Toyota to buy a truck and I said, I don't want to wear a mask, they said, we don't give a shit. Come on in, buy a truck. Okay, great. Now I'm going to buy a truck. So I bought a new truck. I'm driving it to fucking Florida. Fuck American Airlines. You see how it works? You see how it works? I have to fly for my for my job. Hey, you know what? There's this new thing called Zoom. Everybody's doing it. Convince your boss to let you do as much as you can without traveling. Starve them. Fuck them until they wake up. You don't like the word fuck? I don't fucking care right now because this is a fucking war. I'm, I'm quoting a war leader, one of the more ethical ones we had. And I guarantee you that when called for, he used such language. I guarantee it. Probably not in the political theater, though. Do you know why? Because it's war. It's war. They've declared war on you. They have declared war on your way of life. They have declared war on your right to decide what goes in your body and on your face and where you can and can't do business. And they have declared war on your children. They have declared war on your children's right to decide what does and does not go in their body. They have declared war on your children's right to not put a covering over their face. And that is an act of war. That's what it is. It's an act of war. Don't pretend it isn't. Start acting like it is. You declare war on my children through your institution that you call a public school that we all know is actually a government school. I remove my child from that institution. You don't get to touch my child. The end, because it's war. You threaten my job, I go somewhere else and take my time, talent, and ability somewhere else because it's fucking war, and you shot at me, and now you're my enemy. We stand that way. 25% of the country stands that way. It sinks. The ship sinks. It can't run without us. We're the ones that do everything. We don't need half. Because more than half don't do anything right now. The people that go out and get shit done are the ones that mostly are opposed to this. They're the producers versus the consumers. They have always been able to lord over us that there are more people that would prefer to sit on their ass and consume than produce. Because they left us alone just enough that we would go produce in spite of the fact that they stole our money, they stole our property, and they called it taxes. That they overburdened us with regulation and impedance. But if you want to actually prevent us from working, if you want to actually prevent us from doing our jobs, then we'll go do them some other way. Where you do not benefit from them, and your consuming ass can starve. 
And I'm not talking about people on welfare, really, on the starvation. I'm talking about the people that run these companies. You start looking at companies with more than 100 employees, you're talking about the guy that owns that company being at least a multimillionaire. Starve! Starve! I hope you saved your money. I hope you bought Bitcoin, bitch, because you're going to starve, because your company's going to go bankrupt, because we're out of here. Your hospital's going to close its doors. And then you got commentators on TV. They're destroying America. No, you're destroying America. I get people, I hear people bitching. I couldn't fly on Southwest because of stupid pilots. Yeah, we're fighting for your liberty, stupid. They're fighting for your liberty, stupid. Same person last week was bitching about a mask mandate or a vaccine. I was bitching because their flight's canceled. This has to end. And there's only one way it ends. And there's only two choices. There's only two choices we as a people have with this shit. We have compliance and non-compliance. That's it. There's a, there's a, there's a, a line in the Bible. I think it's in Revelations. I'm not a religious man. But it is something to the effect is if you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Or when I was doing Miyagi mornings, remember my intro? Walk right side, good. Walk, walk left side, good. Walk middle of road, squish, just like grape. You have to know what you're about right now. And you have to stand for what you're about. Only strength can cooperate. Weakness can only beg. As long as we are complying, we're not cooperating. We're begging. If we comply enough, it will go back to normal. As long as you comply, it will never go back to anything approaching normal. And yet there are those of us who, for, for us, it's already back to normal. Because we decided no. No, 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 no. Wear your mask. Fuck you. Get a vaccine. Screw off. I'll fire you. I have my own company. Go fuck yourself. We're gonna, we're gonna indoctrinate your children with critical race theory. Well, I have grandchildren, but they're out of the school system now. Goodbye. Thank you for closing the schools. That's the one good thing you did with COVID government. Closed the schools and showed parents how bad your education system was when they saw it as distance learning. And then everybody comes on TV. Well, distance learning isn't very good. No, your teachers aren't very good. That's all distance learning showed you, is that your teachers aren't that good. That all the heroes that didn't wear capes weren't really heroes that didn't wear capes. You just saw reality. And you were like, wait a minute. If my kid can do his work in two hours a day, what are you doing with him for nine? Unless you just want free daycare from the state that you're paying at you know, astronomical rates for, by the way, in reality. There's no reason for your kids to be there. Like I said, instead of telling them you can't, start asking yourself, how can I? You want to become someone who can operate from a position of strength every time they say you have to, how can I avoid that? That's the first thing that goes in the mental computer. How can I shove this up their ass? How can I turn this to my advantage? How can I create a niche for people that they're screwing over? How can I be a leader? How can I found a company, create a niche, whatever it is? There are people that during the Cold War, during the height of communism, left everything behind, what they could carry in their pockets and their families if they could take them with them, and risk being gunned down by machine guns to come to this country. And they did it more to come to this country than the rest of the world combined. And were willing to show up here with nothing but the clothes on their back and a dream 
And a surprisingly large number of those people became millionaires or multimillionaires. And if you sit and you tell me, well, that's because they had opportunities. We don't because the country was better back then. Shut up. Go away. I can't help you. You need somebody else to get you up to speed before you're ready for what I'm dropping today. I can't help you if you think that way. There's more opportunity right now in spite of all this bullshit than there's ever been in history. Do you know what problems are? Problems are opportunities. Every time they create a problem, the person that can create a solution around the problem has a unique niche. Only strength can cooperate. Weakness can only beg. We'll never be one for one as strong as our governments. Not even our, like one person isn't even as strong as like their city government in a small town. But collectively, we're way stronger. And in our strength, we don't need to cooperate with the bullies. We only need to cooperate with each other. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Um, I wanted to remind you guys, if you uh, like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, today, with the Ron Paul announcement and some other things that I have to take care of, I don't have an item of the day for you. There was nothing on sale that was a really good deal that made me do it or anything like that. So I'll just remind you that you can support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. The other thing you do is become a member. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, or just go to the website and click on members. You'll see how to sign up there. It's 50 bucks a year. Use the discounts. Get your money back. And remember, I take cryptocurrency. And for those of you that want to pay by mail, I even take old school checks. And I even take silver. Though since the real explosion of cryptocurrency, almost nobody pays with it anymore. That's interesting, isn't it? But hey, become a member today if you haven't done so yet. It really helps us out. It's how I've been able to do this show for 13 years. If you want to keep seeing TSP get better and better and better and more new innovative things come out, more content come in, things like the Ron Paul Partnership, become a member because that's how we do it. But it ain't PBS, guys. I'm not sending you a $2 coffee mug for your donation 50 bucks a year, get the discounts, make a profit on them, because I believe in value for value exchange. That brings us to our song of the day today, and I'll tell you right up front before I even give you the song, this song is probably my least favorite song of the songs of the week, and I'll explain why I'm playing it anyway uh, as I get into it. But remember, what we're doing here is... Guess Jack's Pandora channel, which is the last week we're doing this. Tomorrow on the Outback with Jack from the back porch, I will do my Outback show. And at the end, if I don't forget, like I did last week, I will tell you who uh, the uh, the song or who the, the, the channel was based on. So this is based on an individual artist. Though we always played with a band and it was pretty much the same band. Okay? But an individual artist. Um, my other clue for you today is it's basically his name is one word and it's not, it's certainly not prince okay that by now with all the clues i gave you this week you should be able to figure it out the song of the day today off that pandora channel is cheap tricks the flame and again it has quite a bit of an operatic sound to it you know these these high pitched vocals in this really big screen kind of feeling to this song, right? And that should help you with all the other ones. If you can't figure this one out, this was the easiest one to figure out with all the clues I gave this week. But the other songs this week were Carry On My Wayward Son by Kansas, 
Open Road by John Caffery and the Beaver Brown Band, Waiting for a Girl Like You by Foreigner, and then today The Flame by Chief Trick. So if this is my least favorite song, why I play it? Because I don't hate it at all. This is just one of those songs when it comes up on this channel, I frequently just skip it if I'm not in the mood. Why? This song came out in 1988, and it was huge. Huge! It was huge! I'm telling you, huge, right? Um, I was a junior in high school. You know, I'd gotten a car, I'd gotten my driver's license, I started having like my first real girlfriends. I'd kind of really hit it with like finding friends and, and going out. And like in the coal region in the late 80s, uh, in a small coal town, everything revolved around the car. Because, and I think even you know, teenagers in general, especially back then, like you get a car, now you're mobile, right? You can go places. Um, but there wasn't a lot to do. So everything was about cruising, like you get in the car and you cruise around. Uh, you get a car, now you can get a girlfriend, you know, uh, or you go places and go hang out. We did a lot of bush parties and stuff like that, uh, camping, et cetera. But it was always about the car, and the first thing you did with the car was you went down to Radio Shack, right? That's what you did back then. That's That was where you got stereos, and you put in a decent stereo with, you know, 6 by 9 speakers, right? That's what everybody did. You bought, like, an old 70s car that was 10, 15 years old, piece of shit for a few hundred bucks, And you threw a few hundred dollars stereo in it. And then it was cool because you had a great stereo. And so music became a huge thing. And there are certain songs from that time, I think for all of us, that anchor us to that time. And one of the most famous things of the 80s and 80s movies is what? The montage, right? The montage, the memories and the little faded images. And like, so you have this. 90-minute movie, and they put a five-minute montage in it to make it a 90-minute movie or an 89-minute movie. Well, the montage came around because we actually have montages in our minds. And this song was so huge at that time of my life, it, it literally creates a mental montage. Like, I can see myself with some of my best friends from school or, you know, sitting around a campfire with one of my first girlfriends or something like that and drinking a yingling, right? Um It, it, in cruising around and, and, and being at that state in my life before I really gave a shit and the peace that comes with not giving a shit. So unless I'm in the mood to kind of relive that and, and be in the, cause sometimes when you relive stuff like that, you, you kind of have regret like the mistakes you made in life or whatever. But when you're feeling really good, then you kind of relieve that and you just think, what a wonderful part of my life that was. So that's when I enjoy this song. Hopefully, maybe it does it for you if you're about my age. With that, been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Another night slowly closes in And I feel so lonely Touching me, freezing down my skin I pretend you still hold me I'm going crazy, I'm losing sleep I'm empty vibing way too deep over you I can't believe you're gone You were the first to be the last Wherever you go, I'll 
watching shadows move across the wall. 